Hello, this is Dr. Michael Weinstein for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Adam Saperstein, MD, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Saperstein is with us to further discuss his presentation regarding Project Emerge and improving safety and quality of patient care through systems engineering. Thank you very much for for joining us here at Congress. Certainly your group has uh, been on the forefront um, of this patient safety movement, and uh, it's really a pleasure to have you here and sit and talk. Yeah, it's it's really exciting to have the opportunity to be at Congress and involved in so many activities, and, you know, we have a big team that's here, and everyone is really, really energized by the activities that are going on here. That's great. Can you can you tell us about uh, Project Emerge? I know I before I came, uh, I wasn't really familiar with Project Emerge, and I imagine that many of our listeners are not as well. So Project Emerge is a, a pilot project where we're testing the principles of systems engineering to improve care in the ICU, and that's sort of our starting point. We started the the beginnings, the infancy of the project started about three and a half years ago when. Peter Pronovost was connected to the engineers at the Applied Physics Lab who were already had a biomedical engineering group. And they were looking for new areas where systems engineering could be applied to improve medicine and sought out Peter. And they began a discussion that I soon, soon became involved with as well, looking at ICU care in particular and looking at our systems of performance. And one of the most interesting moments in my interaction was when, at the beginning of the project, we brought some systems engineers, some folks who look at human factors and performance, and I took them on rounds with me. So they were there as observers, and I thought, you know, rounds are the one thing that we do really well, and I think I do it pretty well, and we have the checklist here. We developed the checklist. We've shown that it works, and they're going to be really impressed. So they went around on rounds, and, you know, they were good soldiers. They went through three and a half hours of rounds with me, and at the end of it, when I was expecting to have pats on the back, they sort of said, yeah, there's a lot of things here <laughs> that we could improve upon. And they told me some of their ideas, and I was like, wow. You know, it's a completely different perspective. And so from that beginning, we, we started the systems engineering process, and Peter and I were involved in these interactions with the Applied Physics Lab. About six months to a year into that, Peter was talking about applied systems engineering in the ICU. And our goals at that time were largely to improve efficiency of care, which would improve quality and decrease patient harm, so decrease preventable harm in a systematic way because we recognize that the one-off way of preventing harm, so choose your harm of the day and try and prevent it, was a little bit like playing whack-a-mole, that old boardwalk game where where you hit hit the mole that pops up in the board as soon as you do, another one pops up, and we were seeing that in a number of ways. And Peter was talking about that to an audience that included George Boleyn from the Moore Foundation at the time. And the Moore Foundation was looking for ways of improving care as well. But they had a very important uh, perspective, and their perspective was the improvement that really needs to be made in care is patient-family engagement. So we learned a lot from that interaction, and, and our goals for the project changed a little bit from being a, a, a very technology-centric 
design system to being a project that's now aimed at improving patient quality and safety, improving patient engagement and family engagement, and then finally improving efficiency, decreasing costs. And I think that those things, have, as we've worked more and more, all became intricately related. So we can't have one without the other. And I told this story yesterday at some point where uh, we were presenting this work at the Amy conference on, on monitoring, and one of the industrial engineers in the audience stood up at the end of the presentation and said, you know, it's really great that your project wants to eliminate all these harms, and we can talk about what those are later, but you've talked about patient and family engagement, and that just seems like it's a nice thing to do. Why are you including that in things like reduction of ventilator-associated pneumonias? And, and I said, you know, what we've learned is it's not just a nice thing to do. It's perhaps the most important thing to do in this project. It's pro- perhaps the most important thing to do because it is, in fact, what leads to harms reduction. It improves efficiency and quality. And then, ultimately, you know, our patients are, pardon the expression, our customers. And if you're not involving your customers, if you're not engaging with them, you're not doing your job right. I don't know if that answers the question or not, but that's sort of where we are with yeah, the merge no, right now. I can go into more specifics, but that's how we got started on this journey. That's very interesting. I'd certainly like to hear a little bit more about systems engineering and what exactly that looks like and means. I, I was curious, though, when you were talking about uh, the, the folks that joined you on, on rounds, can you give us a specific example of something they might say, you know, this is something you should do differently? Or Well, here's a great, here's a great example. We struggle as a health system with early mobilization, just having the manpower to do it. And on rounds, they were watching someone mobilize a patient. And they very quickly said to us, you know, that seems like it's a really manpower, labor-intensive effort. It also looks a little risky. It looks risky to the patients because you're standing up in bed and they're, they're a little bit disabled and risky to the providers who have to bend and carry. Why don't you just have a track system where you would put a harness on a patient and track and hoist. Now, we, you know, we have hoist now. I've seen other facilities actually have a, have a uh, track system to get from bed to bathroom and that sort of thing. But they were talking about a track system that if you know that you want to do physical rehabilitation and your track is the going round and round the IC, which a lot of ICUs do, why wouldn't you put a system overhead for probably pennies on the dollar that you're going to spend for manpower ensure patient safety because they can't fall and you could vary the level of support that's the sort of thing that they mean this other probably a dozen other things that that they pointed out just from a first first glance interesting so can you help me better understand systems engineering and what what that approach really encompasses and what it would look like Systems engineering is is really this process which has evolved, I think, over the last 30 years. We're fortunate at Hopkins that one of the hotbeds and founding centers for systems engineering was the Applied Physics Lab. And it really began in World War II where complex military systems were growing at a rate of complexity that could no longer be controlled by single disciplines. And the interactions were were huge and failures were rife. And so this idea of systems engineering was that you needed a system to control all the subsystems that were being created. 
in military, the examples that are used are often things like battlefield systems where you have a, an aircraft carrier that has planes and then you have satellite systems that are above those planes and ground radar systems and they all need to interact. And it's not going to work if the ground radar team can't, doesn't have the tools, interoperability to interact with both the aircraft carrier and the plane in, in flight and the satellite system above. So systems engineering was really evolved to handle those kinds of big system problems where what they call it is a system of systems. So by analogy, what I like to say is in, in our ICU, we have an electronic health record. That's one system. We have round. That's another system. We don't normally think of rounds as a system, but it clearly is. We have patient and family meetings. That's a system. And they all sort of interoperate. They're all interoperable at some level, but they all are independent of one another. And oftentimes they run in conflict of one another, um, and they don't take advantage of they don't take advantage of each other in ways. So systems engineering over the years has developed, and I'm, I'm not a systems engineer expert, but I've learned a lot working with the folks at the applied physics lab over the years, has a series of processes and tools that can be invoked to really manage these systems. And it begins with something that is called the V-diagram. And the V-diagram is a way of first identifying the issue or problem that you're trying to solve. So in our case, we say we want to eliminate harm. So that's at the top of one arm of of the V. And once you identify that, then you come up with a broad concept of how you think that that problem should be solved. In Emerge, we came up with the idea that we have a simple problem, harm in the ICU. We include in in the harm the inability to engage patients and family members as a harm broadly. And so at the top of that, that's, that's the problem we're trying to solve. We then came up with a concept of operations to make that a standard approach for eliminating harm. Having done that, then there's a phase in that V as we go down the V that says, okay, begin the design process, then build a prototype, then test the prototype, validate it, and then deploy. And once you deploy, you're at the at the far, you're at the top of the other end of the V, and you have an operational prototype. The next thing that happens is you circle back, you'll develop problems in in that prototype, and you begin that process again. You identify the problems, you design to fix them, you then build a, pro- a second prototype, and so you're constantly evolving and improving. And in systems engineering, the systems engineers are really the folks who popularize this term term that people use frequently, which is fail early, fail often. And so we bring out prototypes. We've had paper prototypes that we've tested. And now at this point, we're bringing out our first electric prototype that's uh, actually a a real device. One thing that's really important because it's very easy to get sidelined or distracted by the technology, which is the bright, shiny object. Over the last year and a half where we've really been working on Emerge, the lion's share of the work we've done has been on social and cultural implementation. We've done a lot of work on what things should look like, where problems are, and how 
various stakeholders want to see them fixed or what various stakeholders think they want. And by stakeholders, this is another very important systems engineering term, you really cast a very broad definition of who a stakeholder is. So it's not just the patients and family members. It's not just the physicians. It's not just the nurses. It's anyone who's involved in that system is a stakeholder. And some people may be um, more vocal stakeholders. I think traditionally the physicians have been the most vocal stakeholders. And I think when I was learning critical care, I probably thought I was the only stakeholder. And we've evolved over the years to have a patient, patient-centric patient approach. And so we think of the patient as, as the most important stakeholder, and they very well may be. But, you know, the folks who are providing environmental services are stakeholders in the system. And we know when we're talking about high uh, flow states with low capacity and uh, that those those folks who are doing environmental service may become the most important bottleneck and therefore the most important stakeholder at certain times in the ICU function. So as part of our systems engineering approach, we address concerns and ideas from all those stakeholders. I think you must have maybe read my mind or read my expression because when I I do hear a lot of these terms, uh, I do think mostly about technological interventions. And I I still, I guess, I'm having trouble kind of seeing how this applies to cultural change in ICU. I guess I'm just having difficulty visualizing that. So, yeah, so it's a great question. And from the beginning of the project where I was personally very focused on the technical and we thought that there are many other industries where technical solutions have improved safety and efficiency and the the analogy that's always made is to the airline uh, aviation where very complex systems have been made much simpler to use through the use of technology it still takes incredible amount of technology to fly a plane but it's much easier now than it ever was to do it uh, 30, 40 years ago, and it's much safer. And that's seen as a technology fix, right? You look at a cockpit, and, and now and, and 30 years ago, and you see that the cockpit is much more sophisticated now. And computerization and miniaturization has led to a lot of that, a lot of that improvement. And so at a certain level, we think we should be able to apply that in ways to ICU and other medical care. The example is the electronic medical records where the initial thought was this is going to improve communication of medical information. It's going to make patients safer. And in fact, it may, but it may make patients safer in a number of ways, in particular in drug administration and safety checks related to that. But in terms of conveying information, I think most of us in the field have great doubts about how they're currently deployed, that they're not. So it's not just technology, it's how that technology is used. It's so important. So an example that, that we use frequently is this idea of um, early mobilization. And there are technologies that could improve early mobilization that we don't use, and some of them are simple, like we talked about sealing, a sealing uh, track system to support patients would be a, a simple, low-tech solution, but it's technology. There are other things that we're embedding into the project that will track physical rehabilitation. So as stunning as it may seem, when provider writes an order for physical rehab at our institution right now, we don't know 
whether the patient actually gets it or not because frequently the physical therapist will come up and the patient won't be there and they won't have time to come back. So two days could pass and I could say, well, we wrote for physical rehab. Did the patient actually get it? And everyone will look at, them and look at each other and say, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And the way we find out is we may go back through the notes and see if there's a rehab note or we may ask the nurse who may or may not know. There is no accountability in that system, which is one of the other issues that's built into a systems engineering approaches. There has to be accountability and there has to be a cycle of learning. So here's a technical fix for that. Anyone who gets physical rehab in, in our project is going to be monitored. And the monitoring is non-invasive. We just put an accelerometer on an IV pole that they normally push around as a support that accelerometer will then feed into the system and indicate that, A, the patient was pushing a pole around the unit, and B, how far they went, what their rate of speed is. So not only now do we have a system that provides some accountability, it says that the patient did actually get the rehab. It gives us data that we would have never had before. So we now know that if we order it, we can see on a simple monitor whether the patient actually got it and how they did, how they performed. So rehab is one of these things where we expend a fair amount of resource to provide it. There's good evidence that it works, but if you ask me what the dose of rehab that's necessary to get the effect you want is, I don't think there's any way of knowing right now. So in a system like we're describing where you're actually measuring measuring that progress, you can use it in a couple of that data in a couple of different ways. I could say to you, Mike, your father went 20 feet today, he went 40 feet, uh, he, he went 20 feet yesterday, he's going 40 feet today, he looks like he's improving. You can say the same thing to your father, and that may be a very powerful motivator. It allows the patients and families to be more engaged and more informed about what's going on. It also allows me as a clinician to know what's going on with the patient, potentially, and it's hypothetical right now, but over the course of many patients longitudinally, we could imagine that we'd start to see a record of performance in these therapies and be able to come up with doses, perhaps, or predictors of success or failure. So if your father isn't making any progress in rehab, I'd have firm evidence of that, and I'd be able to have better conversations with you about the fact that he's not progressing in rehab, what that means for his outcome, and then, I don't know, five or ten years from now, I may be able to tell you what that really means in terms of long-term prognosis based on many, many data points from many thousands of patients. I don't, does that help? With it does, yeah. It sounds like certainly a lot of data to manage. Each new data source I, at these store institutions seems to come from a different source, and getting it all together is, uh, uh, I imagine, quite a challenge. Yeah, so data management is going to be a huge, huge problem that I, I, I agree with you. And knowing what data elements we want and what we're going to do with them prospectively is a huge challenge. And one of the sessions at SCCM on this coming, this coming week is on data data management and big data and what does it mean because in another phase of this project we're hoping to start looking at predictive models based on data where where folks will computer scientists are able in many other industries to look at data streams and find patterns that provide early recognition that 
you would never have predicted. And there is some, you know, there is precedent in the sepsis sniffers and, and other things in medicine where we have seen signals in the data that provide useful information and can pr- improve patient outcomes. But for eMERGE right now, we're looking at much simpler constructs, and that is application of best care practices to eliminate these harms. I should take a step back here. Where Where is Project Emerge in terms of its evolution and its future? So in that V model that I described to you, we're sort of at the top of the trailing edge of the V now where we've built our first model and we're going to be deploying that in our surgical ICU, which is a 14-bed unit in, the, in Baltimore at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and this is a research project. So we're taking that first model out, and we're going to see how it performs. Now, by model, and this may make this issue of what's technical and what goes beyond a little bit more clear, when I say we're launching this model, there is a technical hardware piece to it and a software piece, which is a, a series of tablet iPads that the clinicians will use and that patients and families will use to communicate, to gain better uh, situational awareness, to have a little bit of input into certain elements related to harm. That's one part of it. The other part of the project is a large effort that we've made at trying to come up with better teamwork models for providing certain care elements, like mobilization, like delirium management, um, like early vent screening and spontaneous breathing trials, all those things that everyone realizes in the critical care community we're supposed to be doing, but we know that we're not doing with enough fidelity as we'd like. So that's a big part of the project, and that's, I hope, sort of makes it more clear what's technical and what's social and, and cultural. Making that switch in our ICU where at the beginning of the project, everyone agrees, yeah, we should be doing spontaneous breathing trials. We should be ambulating patients early in their course. Everyone agrees on that. But when you ask them, are we doing it, the answer is highly variable. And when you ask, why aren't we doing it, again, highly variable. So over the last year, we've, we've collected information about that and identified the barriers and tried to come up with solutions to overcome those barriers. So when I say we're launching it, part of it is the technical piece. The other part of it is we now have these systems, protocols, changes in how we're going to do things so that we can actually perform. On the other side of that is we're going to be better capturing our performance and monitoring it and feeding back to you and letting you know in real time how you're performing, but also as a system in our ICU how we're performing with with reporting. So we have uh, several subgroups in our project, and one is called Learning and Accountability. So this model that it sounds like is about to undergo implementation addresses all seven of the harms? Is it? Right. So um, there are seven harms in this, and, and just to go through them to make them con- concrete, the harms are venothrom- venous thrombosis, ventilator-associated harms and infections, ICU-acquired weakness, ICU-acquired delirium, CLABSI, 
So those are the five traditional ones that are uh, most ICUs have bundles and everyone thinks that we're doing what we can for those. And then we have two additional ones which would be uh, loss of respect for patient and family or care that's not not consistent with the patient and family's goals of care. So those last two are are a little bit trickier because we don't really have best care practices for them, but although if you ask everyone, they would say those are our goals that we want to have. And when we go around and talk to other people in our hospital and certainly in other ICUs, there seems to be a uniformity of opinion that this is something that we need to do and something we can do better. So we've had a huge effort in in our project to try and come up with measures of performance in these areas and also approaches to best care uh, best care practices in those areas. And so a large effort is made in what we call the patient family portal for communications but also for testing. So if you were a patient in the ICU and you agree to participate in the research arm of the project, then on your screen every so often you'll get a pop-up survey that would ask you questions about perhaps do you feel like you're respect, do you feel like you're engaged in, in ways that are, the questions would be asked in ways that are, have been validated in other studies. Similarly, from the learning and accountability piece, if you're a provider in the unit, when you log on every so often you'll get a pop-up quiz that says if, if you're a nurse providing mouth care, do you understand why you're providing mouth care um, with a series of questions related to that so that we have continuous improvement but also continuous education and, and engagement at a number of different levels. Interesting. That's a lot of work. I think many ICUs have attempted to implement a variety of protocols that are surrounding that liberation, early mobilization, and uh, I guess... I mean, how, how much detail is in this model to really make those things happen? What, what, it, what about it is making that change? So I think it's a really valid question. You know, what's the difference between, what's the difference between trying to have a, a systems approach to this versus a more traditional approach, which would be to have a standing practice of giving everyone who's on a ventilator a daily spontaneous breathing trial? And the answer, I think, is that if the only thing you were going to do is to focus on that, that that is a system, right? So you have a system that says every day you're going to have a spontaneous breathing trial, and that becomes your standard practice. And lots of places do do that um, and do do it well. I think the difference here is that we're taking a number of those different so we have the five and the five harms that are like that where we're saying in part of the project may may say okay in part of part of our process is now every morning at 5 a.m. patients have a sedation holiday and every day at 7 a.m. and at two hours into their sedation holiday they're going to have a spontaneous breathing trial and that may be how you do business already but that isn't how we did business so we have to have a, a new model for that um, so that that's part of it, and so written into the project are a number of processes that change as well. So it's not just the electronic part of it; it's not just the technical part of it. It is that cultural part that says it's going to happen. And if you're working in an ICU where it is happening in a process already, 
then you don't have to invest a lot more in that culture piece. But there's, there's going to be the ability to see your performance much more transparently. So rather than digging down into a chart when you come on and, and round to see the performance on that spontaneous breathing trial or to know that it actually happened, it would be much more apparent. So there is a part of the project that is really, really focused highly on situational awareness because we know that even though units and healthcare systems put these policies and practices into place, that their performance is really rather erratic. The example that's frequently used is providing low tidal volume ventilation to candidate patients, which is somewhere around, I'm being generous now, around 50% of patients who should receive that therapy do. It's probably lower than that. And we know that's the case in our own hospital. So making that information immediately transparent or visible may have a great deal of benefit in and of its own. That makes sense. How transferable do you think this type of model would be? Is it very... I imagine there's a fair amount that would be specific to the culture of a unit and the processes that are already in place in a given ICU. Right. So um, I think it's a great question. The honest answer is I don't know how transferable it is, but we're building the system with the thought that it needs to be transferable. And it needs to be, we say, scalable. So, And it needs to be, in some sense, modular. So we're talking about seven harms, but we're trying to build a system so that the concept of operations that we take for the harm that we see today can be easily applied to any other harm and, and added into the system. So what I call vertical building or vertical expansion of the system. And I'll give you an example. You know, we haven't tackled decubitus ulcers, obviously a harm. We just chose not to include it in this first pilot phase. But you could come to me tomorrow and say, if I wanted decubitus ulcers to be included, how would I go about doing that? And we'd have a process for looking at how you're currently handling decubitus ulcers in your hospital or your unit and see how it integrates in. We'd use what we would think are best care practices for prevention, and then we'd come up with a system that would say, these are the practices implemented into our technical solution, but also make sure that you have the cultural and manpower and social resources to perform. And then ultimately, we'd be able in the system to track uh, decubitus ulcers and track your performance in what we all agreed was the way you should perform. So that's, that's the vertical part of it. Now, the horizontal part of it is, can I go from my SICU to another unit in the hospital? And that would seem to be relatively easy because we're using the same IT systems and a lot of the same culture. But between units, there are cultural differences, so we know that we know that those would have to be accounted for, and different units have different ways of performing. So as we built this, we've also collected a lot of information about making culture change, and that was really one of the Armstrong Institutes and Peter Pronovost's early innovations was the project called CUSP, Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program. So we have those in every one of our units. That's a great resource for bringing about expansion within our hospital as we've gone out to University of California and San Francisco to think about implementing there as a second test site. We're bringing CUSP 
tools out there so that that can be implemented. So that takes care of a lot of the social, cultural, and process pieces. Then everything else is technical. And, you know, I think we live in an age where the technical piece should be the simplest piece. So getting patient data from System X shouldn't be a whole lot harder than it is to get it from System Y. Now, that's a little bit specious. We both know that because it turns out that it requires significant investments to get to to get data out of our hospital-based systems, and it's not trivial. But ultimately, we know that that's doable. The human it's the human pieces that are probably most challenging, and we've been really fortunate in our team because when we when we started the project, we said we're going to be doing it. We described it early and often and probably did a better job of describing it than than I'm doing with you now, but it's easier with slides. (laughs) And it's sort of like mom and apple pie, right? If you go to someone and say, I want to do something that's going to make your life better as a healthcare provider, your patient's life better as patients and their family members more engaged, and I'm not going to ask you to do any more documentation. I'm going to make you more aware of your surroundings and it's not going to cost you anything. Who doesn't love that? And so people are, are really bought in and excited about it. Um, it turns out, at least from our work trying to get the pilot set up, it requires an enormous amount of work. And right now that work is all on the project. If you move out to another site, it's going to take work, especially on the, on the human resources side, to make this happen. And we were, we were well aware of that, but... I think the hardest implementation in many ways is the first one that we're doing now. And as we've gone about it, we're creating essentially operations manuals for how you do this. We have CUSP, and and so that would be the model. And our plan is to get this up and rolling at Hopkins, then move over to our, our community affiliate, which is the Bayview Medical Center, which is an academic and community hospital. It's about five miles away from... Johns Hopkins Hospital in East Baltimore, but a world away, a world apart in terms of how they function. Their processes are very different. Their electronic medical record is different. So many, many of the challenges that we would imagine we'd see in, in an implementation anywhere else, we face with just going across the street. And then finally, we're collaborating with UCSF, and that's been a really, really good collaboration because, you know, they're across the country, but we have very, very similar shared ideals and goals for the project. It's really exciting. You, know, you mentioned it's hard work. You know, whenever I think of making change in, in the ICU, it is, I, I become overwhelmed. You know, how, do you, how do you really approach that? So it's exciting to hear uh, this development. So one of the things that I really took away, we had a, a concurrent session yesterday with Brian Pickering moderating it, and I think one of the last things in his slide deck was, you have to have a thick skin. And I hadn't heard anyone uh, uh, say it so nicely before, although it's quite simple. And it really is true because there are there's a lot of inertia in what, in what we do on a daily basis, so getting people to look at things in a new way is difficult. But one of the things that's nice that makes that, that makes that possible in systems engineering is the fact that we're not telling you what to do. We're asking you what should be done. Now, eventually that establishes a process that 
everyone's supposed to adhere to. And sometimes people forget that there was stakeholder engagement, and we did ask you, and even though we asked you six months ago, six months later, now we have a plan to go forward. And, and so, you know, there are always going to be naysayers. It is a research project, and we just need to see how it works out. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's very enlightening, and I'm sure it's uh, quite enjoyable to be part of it as well. Yeah, it's very exciting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I certainly learned a lot, and really look forward to future work and future uh, results. Thank you. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash care for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress to be held January 17th to 21st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email i critical care at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.